Uh, I, I've entitled this lesson In a New Light, but I, I want to talk about um, a dimension. We'll talk about time. Um, maybe some of you are acquainted with, no doubt, uh, some mathematicians and physicists who tell us that there is a fourth dimension. Have you ever heard that? There's a fourth dimension. Uh, some even say there is a fifth dimension, and I'm not talking about the singing group. Yeah, uh, the fifth dimension. Um, but there are um, probably many dimensions that are beyond our comprehension, as far beyond our comprehension as God is. And time is a dimension that we cannot completely understand, for we are, at least at the moment, three-dimensional beings. You know, have you? I, I'm sure you've experienced, uh, and and you know the expression. My, how time flies, right? Or I've heard my children say before, boy, this is taking forever, <laughs> right? Have you ever, but time is constant, isn't it? It's just how we view it at the time, isn't it? Yeah, time. Um, but uh, we're three-dimensional beings, and what I mean by that is we have essentially three directions of free movement, don't we? We have left and right, we have back and forth, and we have up and down, Right? In three dimensions, I could tell you to go forward eight feet, go right twelve feet, and then climb up a rope six feet, or climb down a hole six feet. And I want you to notice that each of these three directions are perpendicular to each other. That means that any of the directions uh, is its own. Okay? It's not combined with any of the other directions. Which means I can go forward or backward all I want, but I won't be going left or right or up or down. Okay. For a fourth dimension, I was reading in Science Digest an article. They said for a fourth dimension to make sense to us, uh, it would have to be a new perpendicular direction in addition to those three directions to, in order to have free movement in that. And that's uh, what some scientists say, time is that fourth dimension. Somehow it's perpendicular to those. Having said all those things, I'm not going to teach you about physics, <laughs> but have you ever considered how it is that God knows the future before it happens? I mean, have you ever... How does He know that? I think uh, kids usually, they go through those things. I remember when Joshua was very young and he said, uh, um, How old is God? Well, the Bible tells us he's from eternity. Always has been. Now, a child can't, you know, consider a child. A child can't understand that answer. But how do we understand it? We can't either, you know. We just have to recognize that he is. And he always has been. Well, that's our experience with him, isn't it? God is well acquainted with every dimension that there is and, and may be, which must include time, because He knows the end from the beginning. God created days, weeks, months, and years, so He does control the dimension of time, if we want to call it the dimension of time. And I want to give you a couple of powerful examples of this from the Bible. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua here, he is... Um, praying to the Lord. Well, he speaks to the Lord here. 
Uh, Joshua 10, verse 12 says, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun, what did it do? And the moon did what? It stayed. The sun stood, stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Now, why did Joshua, just as a side note, why did he ask the Lord to do that? Do you remember? Joshua was in a battle against the Amorites in defense of Gibeon. And the enemy was, he was defeating them. They were taking a pounding and they began to take a full retreat and run away. And Joshua, what did he do? Did he let them go? No. He pursued. What was the condition that God said when you come into the land of Canaan, what were they supposed to have done? They were to drive all the heathen out of the land. And this is what Josh... Did Joshua take his commission from the Lord very seriously? Absolutely. And so here they are, they're in full retreat, but God God had given Joshua this commission and Joshua is saying, look, I'm not going to be able to overtake all of them before it gets nightfall. And if it gets nightfall, they're going to be spread out all over the place. And so, Lord, you gave me this commission. Sun, stand still. Give me time to rid them and, and to uh, uh, get them, totally defeat them as the commission that you've given me to do, to rid the, the land of Canaan of all these heathens. And so he asked the Lord, in order to complete that victory, he asked the Lord for a longer day. And uh, the Lord answered that prayer, didn't he? The verb here translated, stand thou still, is uh, rendered be motionless. So it didn't just back up, it stopped where it was. That's remarkable because we have to have gravity to keep from floating away, right? Who says God isn't in control, (laughs) right? Many scientists have a serious problem explaining this. So they say, well, that's just a myth. That really never happened. But those of us who believe in an omnipotent God who as creator and sustainer controls the works of His creation, do we really have a problem believing that? I don't have a problem believing that at all. God's in control of all dimensions, isn't He? Incidentally, uh, it's reported, and this is from the Bible Science Newsletter, it is reported by historians that records of the Chinese during the reign of Emperor Yao, they... Uh, and, and, and that was during the time of Joshua. They recorded a long day, which was virtually like two days. It lasted that long. It's in the history. It's in the writings. They've come across that in the writings of Emperor Yao at the same time that Joshua was around. And also, Herodotus, a Greek historian, he wrote that an account of a long day appears in the records of Egyptian priests. So it was recorded by someone sometimes. That just doesn't happen and people don't take note of it. It had nothing to do with uh, the Middle East. We're over in another part of Asia. We're down 
you know, uh, and also in the Middle East with Egypt. These priests wrote it down. Hey, this is an extremely long day. Look, the sun has stood still. Yeah. You're talking about up closer to the poles. He's right. He did something, didn't he? That's that's one example how God has control of these dimensions and that there are other dimensions. The second example is found in Second Kings chapter twenty. Uh, and we're familiar, I'm sure, with this one too. Second um, Kings twenty verse eight. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go back ten degrees? He's asking Hezekiah, Which way you want it to go? You know. He didn't say it's going to go back. He, he left it up to Hezekiah, didn't he? What did Hezekiah say? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. So the sundial, it went back ten degrees. We were kind of talking about time last night, weren't we? It gives you an extra. Let's go back. <laughs> Who wants it to go forward? Well, we want it to go forward till Jesus comes. That's kind of what I'm... Let's move it forward. Jesus coming right now and it's all over with. Yeah. No, right. Now, again, this is a problem for many, but those of us who, who can see in a new light, it is the truth. God created all dimensions. He has full control of them. And there are many instances in history where people have been able to see in a new dimension during their lifetime. For example, some years ago, a wonderful instrument was invented. It was called a microscope. As men started looking in the microscope, eventually they found what? There's these tiny creatures, right? That people, they'd never seen this before. And it was soon discovered that these tiny creatures could make people sick. And so people developed a new theory because of what they had seen. They'd seen something in a new light, you see. People uh, saw this micro-dimension that they had not seen before. And because of what they'd seen, they had a new experience of what reality was. And this is what's getting to my point. They developed a new theory about disease called the germ theory. And the little creatures that they saw for the first time, they called germs. And this changed the entire uh, practice of medicine, didn't it? This new reality was very hard for uh, many people to believe and accept. So you know what they did? These professors, they, they went around giving lectures on health education and they took a microscope with them and they would have people come up and uh, they put this slide in and it had an amoeba on it and the people would come up and they'd look in this microscope and they couldn't believe it. They'd say, wow! And some of the people would come and look and they would believe it, even though they were astonished. Some people still, though they saw it, they were not convinced. Sometimes it's very difficult to see in a new light, isn't it? 
Because when you see in a new light, you're seeing something that is totally different or totally foreign to what you've always believed was the reality. Some will not look. Some of those people didn't, they dared not go up and look in that microscope. You know, there was a time that it was taught uh, by the professed church that the world was flat. If you went too far in the ocean, you'd fall off. Some people, though it had been proven through exploration that the world was round, some people would not believe it. In fact, Galileo was put uh, in prison by the church, supposed church, the professed church, because he said by looking at the stars and studying God's Word that the world was round. Well, you're not a teacher of the Word of God. That's blasphemy. (laughs) Was he proven wrong? No. Some will not look. Some will look and still not believe. Some will look and believe. And the same is true concerning a spiritual dimension. The Bible talks about seeing in a new light. You can read about a man who had an experience where he saw something in a way that he had never seen before. He had been told that Jesus Christ was an imposter, that Jesus Christ was an enemy. The Jews said the disciples had stolen his body away while the soldiers were sleeping and that his resurrection from death was a myth. It was a story. He was told that these Christians were all deluded and they were deceiving the world and if he was going to save the church, he had to kill them and get them out of the way. So he began to destroy everybody who followed this Jesus. On one occasion, he had letters from the high priest and was going to Damascus to have the Christians arrested and put in prison. You know who I'm speaking about now? But on the way there, he had an experience with a new dimension. He saw something that he had never seen before. He saw things in a new light. Literally, too. (laughs) Scripture says a great light shone around him. And he looked and he saw a being that was brighter than the sun. And that being had nail prints in his hands and in his feet. It was the being that he had been told was stolen away while the soldiers slept. But this didn't look like a corpse to him, did it? It was brighter than the sun and it spoke to him. Acts chapter 9. Verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. He made it very plain to him, didn't he? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. See, the Holy Spirit had been, even though Paul was an enemy, Jesus was trying to save him. That should give us all hope. I told this story to to my younger brother, and he still, I've done too many bad things. I said, how can Paul was killing God's people? Even Paul comes out and says, how can you be worse than that? Of sinners, I'm the chief. I asked my brother, are you killing God's people? Well, no. There's nothing then that you have done that God can't forgive you for. 
it's hard to kick against the pricks. <laughs> and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? What does that tell you about Paul? Even as hard and a Pharisee as Paul was, he still had a teachable heart, didn't he? He was kicking against those pricks because he was raised with traditions. He had all this esteem heaped upon him because he was very smart. He'd learned from Gamaliel, the best teacher that they had. But he had a teachable heart, didn't he? He had a teachable spirit. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. That means he was blind. And he was, he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. I imagine a lot of things he didn't feel like doing. <laughs> but what did he do? Saul asked the Lord, What do you want me to do? And the Lord told him the way he was going was the hard way. He told Saul to go down to Damascus. And I'll show you. He put him in touch with his people, didn't he? Now, we don't know how long that Damascus Road experience lasted. It doesn't say. We don't know if it was just a few seconds or if it was a few minutes. But from that experience... Saul was never the same again, was he? Because he'd seen everything in a new light. He was on his way to take the Christians as prisoners. He considered them his enemies. But after this experience, he considered them his brothers and friends. That's very dramatic, isn't it? The people whom he was trying to kill, he was now going to try to save. The people whom he had hated, he now loved. The people that he had scorned, he delighted to be in their company. You see, it changed everything in his life. When you see something in a new light, it can change everything. It can change the way you feel, the way you think, the way you act, the way you talk. It can change everything. After that experience, as the Apostle Paul traveled all over the world, he would tell of people what it was that had changed his life. He told the Jews about it. He told King Agrippa about it. He would repeat over and over again what had happened to him. He was an enemy, one who was going to kill and destroy the Christian church until he saw things in a new light. He came face to face with Jesus. The crucified one appeared to him brighter than the sun with the nail print still in his hands. There's no doubt Paul recognized who he was. I mean, he saw those prints. He recognized this is someone who was crucified. Who else has nail prints in their hands? Who art thou? I'm Jesus, he told him. Wow. Boom. And from that time on, everything was changed in his life. The book of Philippians describes his experience before and after he saw Jesus. In this scripture, Paul describes what he saw, Philippians 3.3. I mean, this is something he realized, something he saw 
in a new light. You see, Paul thought, or at the time Saul thought, he was a member of the church. Isn't that right? And this Jesus and his followers, well, they weren't members of the church, were they? Isn't that what Saul believed? That's why he's persecuting them. Right? But notice what he says here in Philippians 3.3. He says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Boy, I could spend an hour just on Philippians 3.3. I encourage you to study that out word by word. What was it that the Jews said? The Jews said, no, we are the circumcision. Isn't that what they said? We're the circumcision. But Paul wrote to the Christians and said, no, we are the real circumcision. The Jews said, we are the church. Paul wrote, no, they aren't. We are the church, the Christians. We are the circumcision. We are the people of God. Notice the Philippians 3.3. 3, he said, we are because we worship God in spirit and we rejoice in Christ Jesus we are the ones who have no confidence in what? The flesh. What did the Jews have? They had confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. Look at our flesh. Paul's saying, no, we worship God in the Spirit. He said to the Colossians, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he says, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made what? Without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Isn't this what he's talking about? Look at verse 12. Buried with him, that's Christ in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So what he's saying is true circumcision is a matter of the heart. The circumcision that the Christians receive is not external in the flesh. It's an inward change in the heart and life, typified by their baptism. This is what Paul was saying. Now let's go back to Philippians 3. So he says, We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Did the Jews rejoice in Christ Jesus? <laughs> no. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he, he might trust in the flesh, I more, I've done more things than all of you in the eyes of the Jews. Right? And he says, Circumcised the eighth day, I was. Of the stock of Israel, I am. Of the tribe of Benjamin, I am. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, what am I doing? I'm out persecuting those who <laughs> are attacking the church, supposedly, right? Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I'm blameless. You know, that's a word there in the Greek that really means perfect. I'm perfect. If you want to compare uh, who a perfect Jew is, that's me. That's what Paul's saying. You Jews who are out there saying, oh, we're from the line of Abraham, trace my line back. I go clear back to, the, to Benjamin. One generation. 
Paul had all these things. He was sure that he was saved because he had the right lineage. He had the right religion. He'd gone through the right rituals. He belonged to the right race. He belonged to the right group. A leader of the church, no less. He was an educated man. And he was a wealthy man. You remember, they gave him gifts when they stoned Stephen. He was standing right there. He had all these things. But after he saw his life in a new light on the Damascus Road, everything he had he considered worthless. The pastor we used to have said he'd brag about it. I'm a fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist. Okay, Paul. And his name was Paul. Is Paul. Philippians 3. Let's go on. Verse 7. Paul then says, he says, considering the Jew, I'm perfect, blameless, perfect. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You can't say anything worse than that. I count all possessions, all these things, that you, you would look to me and consider Paul is a perfect righteous man of the church. I count all that as what? What is dung? It's the waste that comes out of our bodies, isn't it? That's rather strong language, isn't it? He considers all that dung that he may win Christ. Verse 9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul What's he saying here? He's saying, there was a time when I had everything. I thought. From the Jewish point of view, he did have everything, didn't he? He was probably one of the youngest members of the Sanhedrin. That was the governing body of the Jewish nation. He says of himself, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. (laughs) He belonged to the social elite. He was a Pharisee. You know, the people that that the Jews looked up to the most were the Pharisees. They considered them the most righteous. I mean, they said so when they prayed out on the corner. Right? They had to be the most righteous. They strapped the law to their forehead. I mean, who would do that but a a righteous person? (laughs) Right? Of course, you know I'm being sarcastic. But when Paul saw the crucified one in a new light, he said he considered all of what he had as loss. 
He said, I've lost it all and it's not worth anything. All I want to do is gain Christ. When Paul saw this light and the Lord spoke to him, it was just for a few moments, but it changed everything in his life. Before he saw this new light, he had hatred for those Christians. After that, his hatred was gone. It changed the way he thought. It changed the way he felt. It changed the way he acted. It changed the way he spoke. It changed the expression on his face. So much so, when the Jews saw Paul, they didn't recognize. They saw he was Paul, but this isn't the Paul that we know. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, people need to see that kind of change in you too. You're not the same person you were. And what really happens to a person when they start to look at the cross of Calvary and they start to think through the spiritual meaning of what they are looking at? You know, a lot of Christians know the story. They know the story of the cross. They have that down. I mean, they have, they have crosses hanging from their necks. They have crosses hanging from the, you know, in their car, from the rearview mirror. They have crosses in their homes. But they don't know the spiritual meaning of the story. They have the cross. That cross is their salvation, not Jesus. And the Catholics, they have the crucible. They still have Jesus on the cross. Yeah, they have the cross, the sign. Redemption, though, is a process by which a human soul is trained for eternal life. It means knowledge of Christ in the heart and not just in the mind. After Paul saw his life in a new light, he said in Philippians 3, All I want is just to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. I just want to know Him. That is all. Everything I had before is worthless. Imagine Paul sitting there in Damascus, blind for three days, not fasting and praying. I want to know, thinking back, how wrong could I have been? A Hebrew of the Hebrews, I knew everything. I had it all. Surely I qualified as the best of the best in the sight of God. And Jesus tells me, that's worthless. <laughs> After Paul saw things in a new light, he was willing to lose everything else. But there were Three main things he says there in Philippians that he wanted. First, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He didn't want his self-righteousness anymore. He wanted the righteousness that God provided by faith. The second thing that he wanted was that he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm going to get to these in a moment. He he wanted to know the power of His resurrection. And the third thing he says there, the fellowship of His sufferings. Very interesting things that Paul says here to the Philippians and to us. I want to look at the third one first. Do you know anything about the fellowship of suffering? 
Paul never knew anything about suffering before, did he? Did the Pharisees really suffer? No, they were elitists. They had everything. They were wealthy. People esteemed them, put them up on a pedestal. They were full of pride. They didn't suffer. They dealt with those who suffered as those who were cursed of God. Maybe we don't want want to know anything about suffering because we've never had the vision that Paul had. Maybe we've never seen in a new light what we need to see. I'll tell you, until we see in a new light, we'll not want the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Self will not put self to death. It has to be crucified. But Paul did. He said, I want to know Him. If you really are going to to know someone, you have to know how they feel, isn't that right? I mean, can you relate to someone's feelings if you've never felt them yourself? You can maybe understand them, but can you relate to them? When Jesus was here, He suffered for you and me. Didn't He? The Bible tells us that. Are we ever going to really understand that? <laughs> I don't think we'll ever understand it fully. Yeah, not completely. But if we... We never have any suffering ourselves. We're not going to relate to it at all. Paul wanted to understand. He wanted to know Jesus. If he was going to know Him, he knew he would need to have fellowship with Christ's sufferings. He'd have to experience it. Does that mean we got to be burned at the stake or put on a rack or get stretched apart or get thrown to the lions? No. Those things could certainly be included. (laughs) Uh, But uh, every single person that's in the kingdom of heaven isn't... uh, that they will have had fellowship with Christ's sufferings, but not all of them are going to be martyrs. Notice this from Signs of the Times, July 18th, 1895. Those who reign with Christ in His kingdom must have a fellowship in His suffering. What does it mean? Notice what she says. Every defect in character condemned by the law of God must through the grace of Christ, which is freely given to every soul who desires it, be overcome. Every hereditary and cultivated tendency to evil must be seen, subdued, and cleansed that the soul temple may become fit for the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The divine will must be accepted and the human will brought into harmony with God, though it cause bitter agony and tears. That sounds like suffering, doesn't it? What is the bitter agony and tears that she mentions? It is bringing our stubborn will into harmony with the will of God. When we do that, the result is fellowship in suffering. She continues to say, Traits of character that are offensive to God are often very dear to man and are cherished as virtues, those roots that Brother Tim talked about. How blind is humanity unless the light of heaven is accepted and cherished. We have to see in a new light, beloved. Paul wanted to have fellowship with him. He wanted to know Him and have fellowship with His sufferings. Paul knew his stubborn will must be surrendered to Christ's will, even if it caused bitter agony and tears. 
If we, Paul says, we have to put our body under subjection. He describes it in such a way as a boxing match. Sometimes we have to beat it up, this stubborn will. And it may cause tears. Have you ever tried to give something up and you'd, yourself just doesn't want to do it? You cry about it. You moan about it. You complain about it. Isn't that right? Oh, if I give this thing up, oh, it's going to kill me. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have eternal life if you give this thing up. Who are you going to believe? <laughs> right? Friends, if we're going to have fellowship with Jesus in glory, we've got to have fellowship with, with Him in suffering. That's just the way it is. But Paul also said that he wanted another kind of righteousness too, didn't he? He thought one time he was righteous because, well, he was a Pharisee. Philippians 3.6 He said, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what he believed. But after he saw his life in that new light there, he realized he didn't have any righteousness at all. He went from being perfect to having no righteousness at all in just a few moments. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had the wind taken out of your sails? You know the old expression? In fact, Paul wrote in Romans seven eighteen. Tim referred to that, Romans 7. He said, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. I do not have anything. So now, not only did he want to have fellowship and suffering, he wanted a different kind of righteousness because he didn't have any. He had self... Well, let's put it this way. He had self-righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness he had. What is this righteousness that he was talking about? Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 374. We can be fitted for heaven only through the work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. For we must have Christ's righteousness as our credentials if we would find access to the Father. Whose righteousness? Christ's. In order that we may have the righteousness of Christ, we need daily to be transformed by the influence of the Spirit, to be a partaker of the divine nature. And that's what Peter talks about, isn't it? God has given us precious promises that by these we become partakers of the divine nature. And that takes faith, doesn't it? If you're going to have the righteousness of Christ, it must be imparted to you by the Holy Spirit so that your mind is transformed, as Paul says in Romans 12. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to him by night and before he can even get anything out, Jesus says, you have to be born again. Jesus said, unless you receive the Holy Spirit, you will not be in the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us a partaker of the divine nature. We're not divine of ourselves, are we? Some think so. Many teach that we are. It's Satan's same old lie. God doesn't want you to partake of this fruit because you'll become a god. That's what he told Eve. You'll be just like him. You'll know good and evil. 
I don't know, friends. Sometimes I see so much evil, I don't want to know evil. Do you? We look at things all the time. Makes you sick. In this world. Long for it to come to an end, friends. The Apostle Paul saw that, that he could keep the law perfectly his whole life, but that would not save him. You see, if we could keep the law perfectly and earn our salvation, well, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross, would he? Paul saw that he had to have an experience. He had to receive the Holy Spirit, which he had not received. SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 1, this is Sister White. She says, When we bring our lives to complete obedience to the law of God, regarding God as our supreme guide and clinging to Christ as our hope of righteousness, God will work in our behalf. This is a righteousness of faith, a righteousness hidden in the mystery of which the worldling knows how much? Nothing. That's why it's foolishness to them. And which he cannot understand. Sophistry and strife follow in the train of the serpent, but the commandments of God diligently studied and practiced open to us communication with heaven and distinguish for us the true from the false. Let's look closely at the third thing here that Paul wanted. Philippians 3 and verse 10, he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. If you don't mind, I'm going to take my jacket off. Uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm worked up. I've worked up a sweat. Don't let anybody know that I worked up a sweat on the Sabbath day. They may think something weird there. <laughs> Working for the Lord. I worked up a sweat. At least you're not in the studio with all those lights. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they don't have the air on or what the deal is. But... Here's the third thing. Remember in Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul said, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. You know, the first time you read that, you may say, well, that means that he was hoping that after he died... He'd be raised from the dead when Jesus comes again. And that would be included. But he's talking about a lot more than a resurrection that occurs at the second coming. He's talking about something that he wants to know right now. How can you know the power of the resurrection right now? In Desire of Ages, page 209-210, notice what she says. She, she quotes Philippians 3 and verse 10. She quotes this verse. And then she says, That spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the power of His resurrection, it was the spirit that raised Him, wasn't it? That power of His resurrection sets men free from the law of sin and death. The dominion of evil is broken, and through faith the soul is kept from sin. How is the soul kept from sin? the power of His resurrection. Could the grave hold Jesus? Why not? He had power over sin. He never sinned. The Holy Spirit gave Him the desire never to choose sin. Gave Him grace to never choose. That, is that available to us? That's the power of His resurrection. Paul said, if Christ be not risen, our faith is what? Our faith is in vain. But He was resurrected. 
So our faith is not in vain. We have power to overcome sin because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted to know. Paul wanted to know, I thought I had all this righteousness and it was self-righteousness and now how am I going to overcome sin? What is it that I do? Oh, it's faith. (laughs) Because Jesus was resurrected. What was it that they were telling Paul? Go persecute these Christians. They stole the body of Jesus away. Isn't that what they were telling him? He meets Jesus and says, He was resurrected. How could someone be resurrected from the dead? Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So Paul's got this going through in his mind and as he develops it and you read all of the letters that he he wrote to the different churches, you see he's come to grips and understood there is power in the blood of Christ. If He be not risen, our faith is in vain. We're dead. But because He's risen, we're alive in Christ. See what he's saying? Now how do I attain that? I don't. Christ gives it to me because of His righteousness. These are the things that he says in Philippians that he's wanting to know. The power of his resurrection. The dominion of Satan. The dominion of sin is broken in the life and through the power of the resurrection, that is the spirit of of life in Christ Jesus, the soul is kept from sin. That's what, that's what Paul wanted to know right then. What about you? Do we know the power of His resurrection? Have you seen it? What is it? It's victory over sin, isn't it? His righteousness. Let's look at something that's a fundamental point here, though. There could never have been a resurrection until there was a crucifixion. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? He had to die first. We're going to have communion, the ordinances here after service. That's what this is about. God's Word was made flesh. And this is part of the new light that Paul saw in Christ there on that road to Damascus. That He was the Messiah and He was put to death, crucified for us all. That's something that was pricking his heart the whole time he was carrying out and destroying the people of God. And then he meets Christ and he realizes he was crucified, he was resurrected. They didn't steal his body away. That's not a corpse I'm seeing. After Paul had seen his vision, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Paul thought he was the wisest of the wise until he met Christ. To the Corinthian church, he said in 1 Corinthians 4.10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. This is what happens when you we consider our life by the standard of the world. You know, we kind of get puffed up, don't we?
Notice this from Sermons and Talks, Volume 1, page 57. I want to say to my brethren, shall we humble our hearts before God and be converted? Shall we put off all the self-sufficiency and the lifting up of ourselves and come down at the foot of the cross? Now notice this. She says, the lower we lie at the foot of the cross, the more clear will be our view of Christ. Wow. The lower we lie at the foot of the cross, the clearer our view is going to be. That's amazing. Then she says, For just as soon as we begin to lift ourselves up and to think that we are something, the view of Christ grows dimmer and dimmer and Satan steps in so that we cannot see Him at all. If we're going to see what Paul saw, we're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to come to the foot of the cross. we do that, we'll not think of ourselves as intelligent, wise, or self-sufficient, or righteous in any way. From the devotional that I may know Him, page 62, she says, We should take our fitting place in humble penitence at the foot of the cross. We may learn the lessons of meekness and lowliness of mind as we go up to Mount Calvary, and looking upon the cross, see our Savior in agony, the Son of God dying the just for the unjust. Behold Him who could summon legions of angels to His assistance with one word, a subject of jest and merriment, of reviling and hatred. He gives Himself a sacrifice for sin. When reviled, He threatened not. When falsely accused, He opened not His mouth. He prays on the cross for His murderers. He is dying for them. He's dying for his murderers. Have you seen the cross in a new light? You know, it's good to learn Bible doctrine. It's good to learn prophecy. Those things are good. We also need to know what the law of God says since Jesus died on the cross because we broke that law. There are many other lessons we need to learn. But the lesson of the cross is number one. That's number one. This is what will enable us to see everything and everybody in a new light. The right light. You know, it's an interesting thing. statement of Scripture says we crucify Jesus afresh. And I don't think that many of us realize that when we sin, we bring the identical, same kind of pain to the heart of God that Jesus suffered on the cross. It talks about that in Education, page 263. Oh, and in a number, number of other places. But she says, Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. Few. That word few. Few give thought. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony. But that suffering did not begin or end with His manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, 
every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Knowing how God suffers should change our whole outlook about sin, beloved. But few give it any thought. I mean, you now realize that if you do it, you're going to hurt the one that loves you the most. Do you want to see things in a new light so that sin will become hateful and hideous to you? That you never want to do it again? That's one of my prayers every day. Make these selfish things that I desire raise a hatred in me for it. Enmity. There are many statements that tell us that we don't see sin as we should. How detestable it is in the eyes of God. And as she puts out here, how much it hurts Him. We've come to the foot of the cross and we have to see things that we did not see before. And when that happens, the same thing will happen to us that happened to the Apostle Paul. But it starts at the cross. You see, when Paul came face to face with Jesus on Damascus, he was at the foot of the cross right there. He saw the cross. He saw all the things that he had learned was looking for a different Messiah. He saw the Messiah right there, put to death for all of us. Beloved, what we need, what you and I need, what the Christian church needs, what the Adventist church needs, what historic Adventists need, what we all need is to see in a new light. Then all of a sudden, you know, you know what would happen? All our troubles that we think we have will disappear. <laughs> They'll be gone. Because, as Paul said, they're like dung. That's what they are. We manufacture them ourselves. Saul was blind for three days while he was in Damascus. He spent those three days fasting and in constant prayer. He confessed his sins. You know, and even though he knew and he trusted God and he believed that he had been forgiven, he still felt that he was the chief of all sinners. Imagine the tears that will be shed on Resurrection Day between Jesus and Paul. For all of us. He confessed his sins in deep contrition. He gave himself completely to the Lord Jesus. In Acts 9, verse 17, 18, it says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, that's, that's uh, Paul, it says, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was what? Baptized. A public proclamation that he had given his life to Jesus of Nazareth. 
the Messiah. That's Saul we're talking about. After Saul saw his life in a new light, his eyes were opened to the truth. He received spiritual sight and he was baptized. His whole life changed to where he wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to have the righteousness only he can provide. To know and experience the power of his resurrection and have the fellowship of his sufferings. And when we come to the cross, the low part of the cross, we need to lie down low to get a clearer view of Jesus. With a willing heart to see Jesus, we will see God in a new light. We will love Him and never want to bring grief or pain to His heart ever again. There's a people that the Bible describes as those who follow Jesus wherever He goes. Do you want to be a part of those people? The author Stephen Colby tells of an experience that he had on a subway. If you've heard this before, um, it'll touch your heart still. He tells of an experience that he had on a subway in New York. One Sunday morning, he was riding on the subway. People were sitting quietly, some of them reading newspapers. Some were lost in thought. Some even had their eyes closed. It was very calm, very peaceful. Then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and so rambunctious that instantly the whole climate of the subway changed. This man came in with these unruly children and sat down right next to Mr. Colby. (laughs) The man just sort of hung his head, closed his eyes, and he seemed totally oblivious to what his children were doing. The children were yelling and were throwing things. They were even grabbing people's newspapers. It was very disturbing. Everybody in the subway car was getting very irritated, as you can imagine. Yet the man sitting next to Mr. Colby just sat there with his eyes closed, doing absolutely nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. It was difficult not to be angry with this man who had no control over his children who were disrupting everybody in the whole car. He couldn't believe this man could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all for their behavior. It was easy to see that everybody in the whole car was getting irritated. Mr. Colby thought he was exercising an unusual amount of patience and restraint. But finally he thought, you know, I've got to do something. So he turned to the man and he said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you could control them a little more. Seems rather simple, doesn't it? Maybe even somewhat kind. The man raised his head a little bit and opened his eyes as if he'd just come to consciousness for the first time. And he said softly, Oh, you're right. I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. (laughs) I don't know what to think. And I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Now, how do you think Mr. Colby felt? You see, he was changed instantly. All of a sudden, he wasn't irritated anymore. He felt terribly sad. He changed his speech. He changed his words. 
He changed his thoughts. He changed his feelings instantly. Why? Why did he change? Because he now saw this man and his children in a new light. As Paul said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. If you and I are going to be with Jesus forever, we're going to have to see Him on the cross. I mean, see Him on the cross. Hanging a cross from our neck, hanging it from our car, hanging it in our house means nothing. We're going to have to see Jesus. Not only that, we're going to have to see each other our spouses, our children, our fellow church members in a new light. We're going to have to see everybody in the light of Christ. And when we see the cross in a new light, it will change us. We will experience what Paul experienced. We'll realize that all we have is worthless. And then hopefully we'll say as Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we come to the foot of the cross and see Jesus in a new light, friends. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you with our whole heart for Jesus. We are so thankful, Lord, that you loved us so much that you gave all you had. Maybe a bit grudgingly so because of your love for your Son but you still gave him to us for all eternity. You gave all that you had so that we may become a member of your family again. Lord, please give us grace that we will not stand in the way of that accomplishment. We humbly ask that you forgive us for our sins, for they are many, for our selfish thoughts, our selfish motives, our selfish acts. We lay them at the foot of the cross. Our heart breaks that Jesus had to die for us. Help us to realize that every time that we sin, we nail Him again to that tree and we bruise your heart. We pray that you will forgive us. We claim His blood that was shed for us. We ask humbly, Lord, that you will abide in our hearts. Help us to see the cross clearly each moment of each day so that we make right decisions. We ask humbly, Lord, for the robe of Christ's righteousness to be placed upon us and that we may see others in a new light in the way that Jesus sees them and minister to their needs. Please continue to bless us, Lord, throughout this Sabbath day as you've promised. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.